So we're going to be in Acts again. We're going to pick up in verse 9. And I think this week we're going to bite off a chunk that's not quite as ambitious as last week. So <laughs> um, the title, you know, obviously we're going through Acts. It's uh, called The Church on Earth. And I really feel like i got to sit down standing up in front of you guys. It's like <laughs> a, little, a little funny. Okay. There we go. Yeah, this is better, right? Um, but it's the church on earth, and again, you know, we're going to see that God has a plan for the church on earth as he does for the church in heaven, and uh, I think things are easier in heaven, but we're, we're going to see in a couple weeks that we're going to have the same spirit and the same call and everything that we do in heaven. But the title of today's message uh, for Acts 1, 9 through 14 is While They Watched. While They Watched. Uh, just a quick recap. Um, Acts was written by Luke, you know, Gospel of Luke Part 2, like we talked about, 28 chapters. It covers the birth of the church from Jesus' ascension, which we're going to look at today, and it's spread throughout the Middle East and Europe and, and, uh, and Asia uh, and Africa as well. Um, Acts, that word we looked at, uh, the Greek word was commonly used, Greek literary term, to summarize the accomplishments of great men. Uh, but again, Acts mainly covers the ministries of Peter and Paul. It was written in AD 62 to 63. But really, I think the core of it is that, uh, you know, the, the bedrock of the foundation of the church was laid in the gospel. That Jesus said, upon this rock, you know, I'll build my church. And it wasn't Peter like the Catholics think. It was the gospel that we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Acts, I think, is fitting because it's really like Luke part two. But that it's the foundation of the building of new lives and the church is the resurrection. Is that the gospel was the, the groundwork. But sort of the first level and, and the, the first, you know, Jesus is the cornerstone is of the resurrection like we talked about. If Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, then, you know, what are we doing? Um, but from there, the church builds and grows on top of, of all that. Um, I watch these videos on YouTube. We, we have cable, but it's like very basic and, uh, you know, nothing really on to watch. But on YouTube, I watch this guy who's, uh, I think he's a Christian um, but he, uh, he's like a forest firefighter, and he and his family a couple years ago decided to leave the city and go move out to the country and have this big home in the middle of the woods, and they, like, plant stuff and do the whole country thing. And it's kind of like our pipe dream. But we watch him um, to kind of get out of the city atmosphere. <laughs> but uh, he, he started doing uh, having a beehive and because they have an orchard and some flowers and stuff that they want to pollinate. But it's interesting that when he was putting it together, they have to do this thing that's called uh, comb starters or something where, you know, if you've ever seen a beehive, they put in different slats and then there's the comb and the honey and all that stuff. Uh, but they have to put in these little plastic things that are kind of shaped like honeycomb that are maybe like an inch long to start it out. That way, when they put the new bees in there, the bees have a form to follow, the form to put different rows down of comb. Because apparently if they don't, um, they're used to living in trees and things, and so they expect a circular home. And so they start building comb that's all weird and it's funny and you can't really harvest anything from it. It just becomes a mess. And so uh, they have to put these slats in there to make the comb nice and neat so they can pull it out and get the honey. Um, and at the beginning when they put the new bees in there, they don't really know where they are. And so it takes them a while to find all the food. And so they put the sugar water in there to feed the bees uh, for I forget how long it was, but in the beginning, they need to eat all the sugar water until they find the trees. And there's a bee, you know, that's the truth behind the bee line where they have to be able to see where they're going. You know, the person who's helping them set up said, even if there's like a car in your driveway, 
between the flowers and the, the beehive, it can mess them up. And it just, it just really kind of spoke to me about, you know, we're in Acts and we're in church and it reminded me of that, you know, Acts really kind of is like those comb starters. We need to look at the, the Bible, you know, not just Acts, but the doctrine of the New Testament and of the whole Bible to kind of give us starters where we're going to form and how we're going to grow and how we're going to live and how we're going to align our lives to the Bible. Because if we don't, things get messy real quick. And I think we can see that in our lives or even in other churches where, um, you know, we're not really paying attention to what the Bible says and we're not really using it as a guideline. And things tend to get messy real quick. We tend to form in shapes that we really probably shouldn't have formed into. Um, let's pick it up in verse 9. Um, we're going to read the first three verses here, or 9 through 11. Now, when uh, he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. I think it's interesting that verse 9 says, while they watched. You know that these guys, they were eyewitnesses. They saw Jesus do his life and his ministry. They saw him die on the cross. And then they saw him be resurrected and walk around for a while. But they also watched him go into heaven. You know that this proof to me that he's alive and in heaven because they were eyewitnesses of it. They all saw it. You know, it wasn't just he didn't show up like we talked about last week one day but that they watched him go up. And uh, it says that he was taken up. Hey, Ash, could you do me a favor and grab my drink? I just can't. I'm attached to the mic. Uh, I think it's on the counter. Yeah, sorry. Thanks. Thanks. I'm probably going to go out of it. Thanks. Yeah, I'm attached. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, we'll leave it in and show how much you love me. But that uh, there are eyewitnesses, that he's in heaven. And we'll see more proof of that later um, in the book of Acts. But it says that he was taken up. And I don't know if that reminds you guys of anything, but it reminds me of Enoch in Genesis. that says that he walked with God, you know, before Noah, but that he was taken up, that he walked no more, that he walked with God. And his life was in such a way that God said, hey, I'm going to take you up to heaven. You don't have to go out the normal route. You don't have to go in the flood. I'm going to take you out before the flood. And that sort of gives us this type, this picture of the rapture, where as we as believers, we walk with God. And yeah, we may die one day. You know, no one really is guaranteed not to die except for those that see the Lord's return. And so we see a picture of Enoch being taken up as a resemblance of the church. We also see Elijah, where fiery chariots and uh, a whirlwind came down and Elijah was taken up. And again, we see that there is a witness to this, that Elisha saw him taken up. You know, Elisha was the witness to this man of God going up to heaven. But you know that there's no other way to get to heaven but up. You know, you can't take uh, 95. <laughs> I was going to say the throughway, and part of my map system is still in <laughs> New York in my head, I guess. But John 3.13 says, uh, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, who is in heaven. You know, Jesus is the only one, as we know, who has the keys to the kingdom. You know, if you want to go up, he's got to get you in. He's the one who's going to get you in. It's like, uh, I remember there being, for my brief days in college, when we thought we were cool and tried to go to clubs, there'd be VIP lists or, 
you know, like you got to know someone to get in, but it really, it was just for the promoter to get a, a cut of your admission or whatever. Or, you know, uh, a friend and I, um, he took me to the base that he works on and there's no way I was going to be able to get in this military base without him coming out to get me. But he said, wait by the gate. I'm going to come out and get you and I'll bring you in. And we had no problem, but there's no way with the amount of guards there and the type of stuff that go on at that base that I was going to be able to get in. Otherwise it's the same with the Lord. We can't just go up to heaven and lift up our Bible and say, Hey, let me in. You know, Jesus is the one who's going to open the gate. I don't think Peter's at the pearly gates. Like all those jokes go, <laughs> you know, it's Jesus welcoming us in. Peter's inside. <laughs> um, but verse 10 says that they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up. You know, I think I would too. You know, if we we're all hanging out <laughs> and Gus just started rising up to heaven, I think I would probably be watching you go the whole way. I'd be staring up, wondering how high is he going to go? You know, as a kid, we did model rockets and we'd shoot the rockets off and watch them go up. And sometimes they wouldn't go as planned. Most of the times we were kids putting these things together. You know, one time we went in a, this guy's pool and we all ran. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but we'd watch steadfastly as this thing would go up and keep our eyes on it. But I think it was the ultimate rubbernecking. You know, down here, there seems to be a lot of rubbernecking. There was in New York, but now it's like traffic both ways. Like there's no reason for traffic except we're looking at why they're in traffic. Um, but that's really what they were doing. They stood there. Jesus went up. He probably disappeared. And they just kept staring. You know, wondering if he was going to do some sort of trick, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. They were maybe wondering if they were going to go, too. It's interesting, though. It says that two men stood by in white apparel. Um, you know, were these angels? It said men. Are they angels? Well, I think probably they were angels. You know, angels can appear as men. Um, you know, maybe they were men who had been resurrected. I don't know. It's just something to think about. But there are also angels guarding Eden after God cast them out of the garden. There are angels sent to Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham too to announce uh, the birth of his son and to, to rescue Lot. There are also angels in the tomb of the resurrection that when they opened it up, they saw the angels in there and they said, hey, why are you looking for the living among the dead? You know, maybe it's the same angels here. I don't know. We're not given their names. We're just sold two men appeared. Um, but it's probably angels. But this scene also, you know, reminds me of the transfiguration. When we saw who Jesus really was, you know, Matthew 17, one through eight says, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And it's interesting that he says, Don't tell anyone until after the resurrection. And I think it's interesting because we see a picture of Jesus for who he really is at the transfiguration. And the same thing really kind of is revealed at the ascension that no one else is flying up into the sky. You know, I saw this video of these two guys with jetpacks jet flying over Dubai or something. It was awesome. But 
they weren't going up under their own power. You know, are these the two witnesses we see in Revelation? You know, there's talk about maybe the, the two witnesses that come and preach and, and die and people rejoice when they finally are killed and give gifts and then three days later these guys rise from the dead and arise to heaven. Uh, maybe it was Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, you know, like the two guys on the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, there probably were angels, but I think that there's an interesting similarity here where we see when we see Jesus for who he is, uh, there's Moses and Elijah, but then they're gone, and, we, and then they really do see Jesus for who he is, that it's Jesus and Jesus alone. But whoever it was, the disciples were probably oblivious at first. You know, uh, the verse doesn't say where these two men came from. It just said that they stood by them. You know, so they're staring up, looking into heaven, and then they don't notice that these two other guys are there with them. You know, maybe they walked up, maybe they stood right behind them. You know, we're uh, in worship before, and I look over because I thought someone was standing in the room and no one was there. You know, I thought maybe someone came in or my wife was there. But they say, hey, men of Galilee, you know, honk, honk, keep driving. Guys, wake up, pay attention. Uh, you know, rubbernecking like we talked about or ever, like be at a traffic light and know you have a text message. So you go to check your text message and then the light turns green and someone honks at you or maybe you're the person honking at the person in front of you because they're looking at their phone or doing their makeup at the red light. But it's interesting that these two men, they don't give them anything new. They give them, uh, they remind them really of the promise of his return that when they show up, they don't give them something new to do. They don't, you know, give them some new strange doctrine. They just remind them what Jesus had said that, hey, you know, the same Jesus is going to come back the same way you saw him go. They don't tell them that that they're going to see him come back. They say that he's going to come back like they don't necessarily say that they're going to see his return, but they say the way he's going to return, you know, and the message of angels will always be reminding us of what God has promised, pointing us to it and ministering to us about it. You know, angels, you know, if an angel says something else other than that, uh, we should watch out. Uh, Galatians 1, 8, and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. You know, I think it's interesting that these people who claim to be Christians receive a message from an angel that's a new gospel. I go, well, have you read Galatians 1? You know, people say, oh, well, an angel appeared to me and gave me this. Or I went and heard this. And it's just, it's not the case. You know, I think, you know, if I saw an angel, you know, if I was walking around the corner and I saw an angel, I'd probably freak out. But if it started talking to me, I'd freak out even more. But if it started telling me something that wasn't in the Bible, I would hope that I would, you know, turn to the Lord and ask the Lord to handle it. I don't think I would write it down in a book and say, hey, an angel gave me a new new gospel. Because I know that the Bible is very clear that, you know, God's angels are his ministers. They're not going to go out and, and give us anything different. In fact, the ones who do, the Bible talks about that there's doctrines of demons, that there's doctrines of fallen angels who come out and give you other ways to, to salvation that are lies. But even more than that, I think that we have the Holy Spirit, you know, he points us, he reminds us of Jesus. I don't need an angel to come minister to me. Great, if God wants to send an angel to come minister to me, fantastic. But I have the Holy Spirit. You know, as believers, we have the Holy Spirit. And I'd much rather hear from him about the gospel. I'd much rather hear from God himself uh, than one of his angels. 
But verse 11 says that, that it's the same Jesus. You know, it wasn't someone else. You know, Jesus doesn't ascend and that, that there's going to be someone else different who comes. You know, like different religions teach about people who are going to come back. But he's the same one. You know, it's the same Jesus throughout all scripture is the one coming for us. You know, when we read the Bible and we read the Old Testament where there's these Christophanies where uh, the chief angel comes and it's Jesus. Or we see like with the two angels who met Abraham, Jesus was there. Um, but he's throughout the whole Bible. And I think that that's what's great is that the, when we read the Bible, at least intellectually, we can get to know who God is. If not, you know, we connect on a deeper level with the Lord that way. But that when we read these pages, that the same guy who read these things, who wrote these things, excuse me, said these things. I was thinking of the red letters written down. But the same guy who did these things for us is the same one that we're going to meet when he comes back. That there's not going to be this difference. We're not going to have to be reintroduced. You know, and that we're going to spend eternity with him. That there's no successor to him, you know. Um, it says that Jesus sits on the throne of David. Well, there's no successor to Jesus. He's the, he's the final one who's going to rule and reign. Um, you know, we don't have to worry about his kingdom being taken over. But it says that he's going to come again in like manner. You know, again, just reminding them what Jesus has said. You know, and how important it is that we don't listen to anything that any man or angel says that is not in the Bible. You know, it's, we could do a whole other study on that, but we really need to listen to what the Bible says. And if I'm saying anything else, if our friends are saying anything else that's not in the Bible, obviously there's stuff that, you know, is debatable. Um, but the core doctrine, you know, we really... We really can't stray from that. I think especially in these last days, you know, I'm wondering, God, you know, why do you even have me down here? You know, I think, you know, I'm not, the, I'm not a greatest teacher by any stretch of the imagination, but I think that it's, in a sense, it's like, well, you guys believe the Bible. I believe the Bible. And that's a rare thing these days. So when we look at the Bible and we say that this Bible is literal and it's true, um, it says what it means and it means what it says. You know, um, on the radio the other day, they were talking about, liberal theology and how they believe the Bible, but they don't believe it's literal. And I just, I don't, I personally don't get that. I don't know how you can read the Bible and go, eh, it's not literal. You can't take it literally. It, it's nothing but literal stories. You know, Matthew 24, 29 through 31, Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And it's cool. That he's talking about the last days. I love how the Bible is always like there's always these correlations between stuff that happened uh, with the plagues and with the end times, with the dark in it, with the darkness and everything else. But it says that immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heavens will be shaken. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. You know, that this is how Jesus is coming back. He's not coming back quietly ascending into heaven. He's not going to sneak back down to earth. But the entire universe is going to be shaken. The entire universe is going to shake and tremble at God's return. And it says that the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Would that be a cross in the clouds? <laughs> Maybe. 
I think maybe it's more like he said the sign of Jonah, you know, or the sign of the end days would be like the days of Noah. It says that this is the sign. The Son of Man is going to appear in heaven. This is the sign that the end is, is come is when Jesus returns. You know, the Bible talks about, you know, there will come a day in the last days when people say, hey, Jesus is in the desert. Go check him out there. Or, hey, Jesus is over here. Go check him out there. You know, when he comes back, we're really not going to miss him. You know, have we seen him ascend? Are we, are we living like, like that? Or are we just standing around with our heads in the cloud? Like, if Jesus is alive and we believe that he's alive, do, do we live like it? You know, do I live like it? Or do we just stand around and, you know, kind of come to church on Sunday or do our Bible study in the morning, but then, you know, we kind of leave it there. Our heads are there and we're not paying attention to the stuff that's going around us. Um, you know, I remember it said to me early on when I got saved, um, you know, you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. We're in good company. <laughs> and, you know, I, I kind of get what maybe they were saying. You know, I don't, I don't really know what their motive was, but I get that. I get the saying. But in reality, I don't, I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's possible. If you are truly heavenly minded, you're going to be earthly good. We're going to be earthly good. You know, the more heavenly minded we are, the more earthly good we become. Because when we begin to realize that heaven is everything, earth is just a very short time for us to live and uh, come to know God and know others and love others. When we realize that, we begin to really not care about the things of the earth anymore in the sense of, well, if you want what I have, you can have it because I'm going to heaven. Or I'm going to love you because I don't really need to, to push my career so hard that I'm going to run over you. You know, it's like, we become more earthly good or we realize, hey, heaven's everything. I want you to go there with me. You know, I think it's when we become more concerned about this life, but we wrap it in spiritual talk or spiritual terms. That's when we lose our effectiveness. Like when we begin to think that, oh, well, I'm going to go do this for the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And then we begin to go on a crusade or a jihad or whatever it is. We don't become very effective. You know, I was at the DMV, MVA, right? I call it DMV because that's the way it was up north. By. Do you really? It's like that DC. Oh, really? It's, yeah. Okay, good. All right, good. Is MVA? MVA just sounds awkward to me. I don't know. <laughs> so DMV. All right. So I was, I was there yesterday, and there was this guy talking, and apparently he went to church. He was, I don't know who he was talking with, but he was talking about going to church. And I guess he had a falling out with his dad. And I know all this stuff because he was just talking about all this in the DMV. And he was talking about how, you know, he was praying for him and he was trying to be nice to him and, and all these other things. And then at the end, of the, towards the end of the conversation, I was trying not to listen, but it was hard not to. <laughs> you know, he's like in the row behind me. And I just, you know, every three seconds I'm looking for my number. But he said, basically, I just want to cuss him out. I wish I could go up to him and cuss him out. And I'm like, all right, I get the motive. I get even having that desire sometimes. But it's like you're having this deep personal conversation about someone who's doing something totally wrong to you out in the open at the DMV. I just think it gives sort of this rough example of Christianity. Like if I was an unbeliever sent by, I go, and he's talking all this Christianese, and yet it sounds just, it just was overdramatic for me. I just think sometimes there's way too much drama in our lives that if we were more heavenly minded, we wouldn't be so dramatic. I think that that's my point. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe you can find a point in there. But really, the best effectiveness is, is when we're most concerned about heaven. You know, I saw a bumper sticker today that said that my, earthly, my, my treasure is in heaven. 
I'm like, that's right, you know. <laughs> it wasn't on a, a brand new Lexus or anything, so. <laughs> but I've seen nice cars too that, you know, say by his grace or blessed, you know. Then people, when we have our priorities right, it's when we become the most effective here on earth. And I think that's what the Lord would have us be on earth. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't want us to be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good when, when really I think that just means we're not applying our belief. We're not living on our belief. You know, let's get to work. And how do we get to work? It's by waiting on God. And how do we wait on God? Being expectant for his return. You know, we don't need to sit around like the disciples or stand around outside. You know, we come out after study. We go stand out in the parking lot and just start looking up. You coming back today, Lord? And people walk up to us, say, what are you doing? I need to park here. We're waiting for Jesus' return. Do you want to join us? No? How about you move so I can park? I think that's sort of a reality for most of us. We, we, we really just need to be focused on it, on his return and let that be a motivation for us because we're not going to miss it. If we're here when Jesus comes back, we're not going to miss it, guys. You know, we're going to miss it if we're more earthly minded than we should be. Um, you know, there's theories of because we have global TV now um, or satellite television, that, that's how we're all going to see his return. I, I don't think so. You know, I think Jesus is coming back in a way, ripping open our dimension. We're going to be able to see him wherever we are. We don't need a good seat. We don't need to be up on a mountain or in orbit. You know, we're going to see it. And uh, we're going to see it everywhere. But uh, let's go on. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. You know, it says that they returned to Jerusalem, and that's what Jesus told them to do. I think it's interesting here the disciples finally obey right away. That there's no debate, there's no back and forth. Jesus sends, the angels say, hey guys, what are you doing? <laughs> and they go back right away to Jerusalem. They obey right away. And you know, for me, it's something that I think the Lord was kind of hammering home for me, really, is, you know, what a struggle it is to be obedient right away. You know, all right, Lord, okay, I'll go study now. Or, okay, I'll go do this now. Or, let me just finish doing this first. Or, let me do this first, and then it's the end of the day. Another day passes, and whatever I was supposed to do, I didn't do. Or, you know, even though I want to do it, I always, you know, I tend to come up with excuses, and that's not a good thing. I think it's interesting that the disciples, when they saw him ascend, when they realized where he was going and what the reality of the situation was, they began to obey right away. You know, there's that, that parable that Jesus tells about the two servants. The one, uh, his master says to him, hey, go do this. And he says, sure, Lord. And he goes out and he doesn't do it. And the other one, he says the same thing. And he says, no way. But as he's going away, he goes, you know what? I really need to go do that. And he goes and does it. And Jesus says, well, which one was obedient? Well, it's the one who actually went and did it. And I think sometimes, I don't know about you guys, but for me, I rationalize my obedience. Well, I intended to do it or I intend to do it. But really, you know, it's, it's sin if we're not obedient right away. You know, if God is asking us to do something and we, and we delay and put on the brakes, um, you know, that's when uh, oh, the door was opening over there. That's when we get in trouble. Oh, 
But it says uh, that it was a Sabbath day's journey. And you guys probably know the saying, but it's about 2,000 cubits uh, per rabbinical law or about a half a mile. Um, that it wasn't very far away from where they were going. That even when this happened, that, um, you know, that they were still mindful of the law. They were still mindful of the Jewish tradition. And Jesus didn't have them just sin just because he fulfilled the law. He said, hey, you know, go back to Jerusalem. It's not that far from here, you know. I think sometimes that's the way it is with the Lord when he asks us to obey something. It's really never that far. You know, uh, it's, it's really never that far to go and do it. It's just one more step. It's just a restful thing. You know, I think when the Lord asks us to do something, it's never meant to be a burden. You know, all throughout the scriptures, Jesus is trying to say that, that, that he, is, he is the one that's got the easy yoke, that he's not going to put a burden on us that's going to be hard. Yeah, maybe he'll ask you to move across, uh, you know, the earth, like you guys have shared with me about, you know, going on missions and uh, going really all the way across the earth. But I'm sure you could say that, well, when you knew God was asking you to do it, yeah, it may have been hard in different aspects, but it wasn't a burden. You know, coming down here to Maryland, it was hard in certain ways, but it wasn't really a burden. It was exciting, you know, the first few times. It wasn't so exciting towing a car behind me sometimes, but, you know, in traffic, but it wasn't a burden because I knew it was the Lord asking me to do it. But there are times when, when I don't really want to do what the Lord's asking me to do, and, and I make it a burden. And really what the burden becomes is not doing it. You get burned down with guilt. You get burdened down with, you know, uh, conscience that's messed up or you get burdened down with trying to come up with excuses why you're not going to do it but really sometimes just being obedient is so simple and it's 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 easy you know even when i've had to obey things that i don't want to do that are hard that mean bad consequences you know quote unquote bad consequences stuff that i just didn't want to deal with it was always better um, to be obedient I think it's interesting also that, you know, that they were conscious, they were conscious, excuse me, of their surroundings and their journeys. And, and, and I don't think we are sometimes. I think we're very far removed in our modern society of real life or what's going on around us. You know, I've met a few of the neighbors, but I don't really know them. And it's kind of, you know, in this day and age for me to go knock on everyone's door would probably be very awkward. And, you know, <laughs> you know especially if I hand out a church card or something like that. But I think we're very, uh, you know, we just miss out. We're all driving on the highway. There's probably 10, 20 people within 50 feet of you in any direction. We don't know their names. We don't know what they're doing. We get mad when they cut us off. I get mad when they cut me off. They probably get mad when I cut them off. <laughs> but we don't, we don't know each other anymore. We're walking, around, there was a, a, we're walking around with our heads in a cell phone, not realizing what's going on even at the dinner table sometimes. We got to eat with friends. <laughs> we're all on our phones. You know, Our friends are right here, guys. Let's put our phones down. But they were, you know, I think that they were so aware that they knew how far it was. You know, yeah, the time was a little different, and yeah, it was a religious law and everything. But I think sometimes we miss the people that are right in front of us or the opportunities that are right in front of us. You know, my wife was, uh, had to go sign the lease, I guess it was, a couple weeks ago. And she met a girl at, um, at the lease office who was looking for a church. I don't know how it came up. You could ask her. But she's like, oh, yeah, I'm looking for a church and everything. And then, but she, like, works Sundays and everything. But she was very excited and... Uh, I went in there yesterday to, to get a copy of the lease to go get my license and also because we have like a water stain from upstairs so I had to tell them about that. But I got to meet her too and it's funny, it just, I wanted to get in and out of there but they didn't open until 10 so I had to wait around and then she was working and then the girl I thought I was going to talk with uh, was busy so I got to meet her and she was really nice and, and she's like, oh, you're, you're Mr. Shanley. I'm like, Tim. <laughs> but and, uh, she had all the cards on her desk 
You know, it's like, you know, I think sometimes we miss the people that are right in front of us. You know, I'm going in there trying to get in and out, and it was an opportunity uh, to meet this person. Um, and she's really nice, and I hope that she comes out one day just for, uh, it'd just be cool. But I think we just need to be more conscious of our surroundings. You know, in our day and age, it's very hard to miss out on that. You know, uh, you could probably do a whole study on it, but my wife and I have talked about it a lot. Like how Jesus said that, you know, we're to go spread out and multiply and fill the earth. And yet, what does man do? We gather together in the cities, build our towers up, and think we're God. And, and not that there's anything really wrong with living in a city or being in a city. I'm not saying that. But I think when we're around man-made stuff all the time, we really begin to, to miss God. You know, uh, you go to New York City, you're going to be thinking about all the advertisements, all the movies, all the restaurants, you know, all the people. Are you going to get mugged? You know, you're probably not going to think about God too much. But when you're in the woods or you take a walk through a park, you know, you hear the birds, you see the trees, the sun shining, um, you know, whatever the case may be. I think sometimes it turns our heart a little bit more to the Lord because it's his creation rather than, than our creation. But it's cool that even their journeys were related to God's design, that this journey of a Sabbath day's journey was, you know, maybe a half mile. You know, if we were to walk a half mile today, you might be tired. I don't know if you guys walk around the city a lot, but you know, maybe, maybe it wouldn't be. But a half mile, it's, it's really not that big a deal. I think it's interesting that their journey was, was even restful. That even that journey back from uh, the Mount to Jerusalem was, wasn't a big deal. It was just, hey, we're going to take a little walk today. You know, I like to nap. Sundays is really my day to nap. I took a nap yesterday, so maybe I won't nap today. Uh, and I kind of need it. If I don't get my, an afternoon nap on the weekend, man, my week is shot. Like, I'm tired by the end of the week anyway, but it's like, I just need just a couple hours just to zone out, zone out. Otherwise, it just doesn't happen. Um, you know, this walk wasn't a big deal. And, and hopefully the time it took you guys to get here wasn't stressful. <laughs> hopefully the, the journey here or the journey uh, where you're going for church is not uh, stressful. I know for me it wasn't stressful. I didn't have to go anywhere. <laughs> but, um, but really, we need to be close to where we fellowship, if at all possible. You know, it's hard being far away. Um, you know, a couple summers ago, I started visiting a French church in the city just to get some rest and get away. I was visiting another church. It was about an hour away just to kind of get away for a few weeks and, and get some things straight uh, in my walk. And, uh, and it was nice, but it was also kind of stressful because I had to drive kind of far. Um, but also, you're not able to really fellowship with people if you're not close by with them. You know, and I think that was the benefit of living close to church and having a restful journey is that you get to fellowship with them and sometimes there's circumstances like you know there's no good church close to home or anything like that but um, you know because we had a lot of great people who come to our church but they'd come from far away and it was hard for them to fellowship and you could tell it, it took their toll it took a toll on them for sure and us too because we wanted to hang out with them but it just wasn't practical but you know I was I'm very happy to have a 20 minute drive down to Bethesda for the P.O. box that we got after hours of travel, you know, I look forward to, you know, uh, what the Lord will do and prayerfully, you know, getting a place to rent in Bethesda and being able to go down there. And that 20 minutes to me, at least at this point, is is a joy. And I'm like, man, this is great. You know, I can go that close instead of having to drive four and a half hours. You know, it's not that far away anymore. And that's a good thing for me. Even my commute, it's still 35 minutes, but it's not that bad. It's really not that, I mean, other than paying. <laughs> The tolls on the 200, but <laughs> you know, I haven't looked at my easy pass bill yet. But, <laughs> but it says, verse 13 here, we have Peter and James, the brothers, you know, sons of thunder, 
uh, I'm sorry, James and John, the brothers, Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James. And uh, reading the commentary in this area, you know, one commentator said, who is there? The 11 disciples, the 12 minus Judas, obviously, are present, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, the brothers of Jesus, such as James and Jude, the women who follow Jesus and others, adding up to about 120, apparently, when you dig in. Uh, Calvin translates with the women as with their wives, a reference to the wives of the apostles. I think that's cool that when they came back, they were there with family. They were there with people and friends that they knew, and uh, it wasn't just a small group. It was a large group. Uh, but where, uh, and to me, that's another proof of the, the ascension, that these people saw him go up. They knew, you know, it wasn't just one guy who, who claimed it, but it was several, you know, possibly even over 100. But where were they staying? They said that they were in the upper room. You know, does this remind you of the Last Supper? You know, this was just, a, you know, possibly a few weeks earlier or a month earlier. You know, it was also the highest part of the house, the upper rooms, the story where the women resided. You know, I don't know if it was the same room, but I think it's interesting that there's a, a similarity there. You know, it's a room in the upper part of the house, sometimes built upon a flat roof of the house uh, where people would retire in order to have dinner, to meditate, or to pray. You know, sort of like we'll see later, Peter's up on the roof of the house when they're making lunch, and God gives them that vision. But maybe it was the same place. Maybe they didn't have homes anymore, so this is where they were until their next decision. I don't know. Maybe it was someone's house. Maybe they were renting it. Maybe it was... I don't know. But I think, you know, there's some friends of mine who live together in New York State, a bunch of young single guys live together and young single girls who live together, and just how wonderful that is. You know, I remember living together with my friends after getting saved, and it was just fantastic. We'd have Bible studies all the time. We'd play video games all the time. We'd go to the supermarket and goof off and just be young and dumb and single. <laughs> but it was great because, you know, it's just it was just so refreshing. You know, it's something I needed early in my walk, but... Ecclesiastes 4.12 says, Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and threefold cord is not quickly broken. That as believers, we need to stick together, and we're going to look at this more in a minute, but that when we are together, you know, it can't be broken. You know, if you have a rope with one strand, you know, it'll hold a little bit, but several strands will hold more, and a lot of strands will hold many. You know, like there's these giant bridges that are held up by one cable that's just woven in and out through the bridge, but it's multiple cables put together. In verse 14, where we're going to close, um, it says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. You know, that there was unity here. I think that that's awesome. That all these guys, all these ladies, were together in one place. You know, they didn't split up. They stayed together. And, and I think that that's very important as Christians, that we stay together. Um, you know, and not just, you know, it doesn't mean don't go somewhere else, but as believers, to have one accord, one heart, and one mind together. Psalm 133 says, A song of ascents of David, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the dew of Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. That we see here, and we're about to see uh, the Holy Spirit come uh, in the next chapter, but we see that as they're gathered together and in this, in this psalm, it says that there's blessing in unity. There's blessings in unity. There's a connection directly between unity and blessing. You know, godly unity opens up the door for blessing. I mean, I think even in the world, when we're unified as a sports team, the more unified they are, the probably better they play and 
they'll probably win the championship. Um, but as a church, how much more when we're unified? God goes, yes, this is what I want for you guys to be unified. Um, again, I'm not doing this whole modern ecumenical push for Unitarian Universalism where we all get together and, you know, interfaiths get together and all this stuff that's false unity. It's really cutting out Jesus and being unified around anything other than him. But really, as believers, when we're unified, blessing flows. When my wife and I are unified, there's blessing in the house. When we're not unified, <laughs> you know, you can feel it. There's not a there's blessing just isn't on it. But, you know, the disciples owned one car. It was a Honda, Honda Accord, right? <laughs> I had to throw it in there. It's the worst joke ever, but it's in there. <laughs> but, you know, it was all of them together, and there's nothing sweeter. You know, we're going to the pastor's conference in a couple days, and I think that there's nothing sweeter than being in that environment and hearing all those people sing to God or a passion I've been to. Uh, it's kind of like one of the videos we watched and all those songs we were singing before, um, all these young people getting together and singing for Jesus. You know, the passion I went to was not far from here, George Mason University, I guess. Oh, yeah. um, and it was in 2008 we went to D.C., but it was like, man, young people coming together for Jesus was awesome. Uh, or even just great times with friends. When we're together and we're just laughing and hanging out. There's really nothing better. We see that his brothers and his family are here. And I think that that's interesting. But because before the cross, before the resurrection, you know, his family didn't really believe him. You know, his friends said, hey, Jesus, you know, you're kind of going crazy. <laughs> Let's get back in line here. Uh, the brothers tested him to go to the be known at the feast. And he said, no, you know, my time's not yet. And he snuck into the feast later. But really that seeing him, seeing him die and rise again changed all that. That when they saw the power of God, the resurrection in their brother Jesus' life, it changed their hearts. They were willing to gather together with all the other believers. They were willing to believe. They were willing to follow you know, their brother who they didn't really respect before. They didn't really believe before. And I think that that's great that the resurrection and Jesus really can change even the hardest of relationships. You know, can change family relationships. You know, the Bible says that... Uh, you know, it's easier to, to I'm, I'm butchering this, but it's basically it's easier to win a, against a defended city than it is a brother who's offended. You know, man, it's hard. It's hard when family's offended. But I think we need to pray for our families that they might see and know. You know, God's been laying certain people in my family and my heart lately that I haven't thought about that are going through things that, man, I just want them to come to know the Lord, even though they're, they're going through stuff that you might look on and have total reason to be mad at them, but... I'm not mad at them. I'm just broken, I guess. And that's the Lord, because in my flesh, I'd want to be mad at them. But that they might see and know Jesus. You know, just like his brothers and his family saw Jesus for who he was after uh, the resurrection, that, that our family needs to see Jesus and know them, that he's real, he is resurrected. You know, it, And this all happened while they watched, and they watched Jesus ascend, and now they're waiting and watching for the Holy Spirit to come, which we'll look at next week, that... You know, we need to watch. We need to keep watchful and, and keep our eyes up. Because, like we talked about earlier, if we don't, we really become ineffective. So, um, Father, I just thank you for your word. And I thank you, God, that, Lord, you are in heaven and that you are faithful and that we can trust you. And, uh, God, we do pray for those in our family, Lord, uh, who don't know you. God, we ask that you would bring them to know you. And, Lord, we thank you for the stuff that they're going through, as hard as it is, that they might come to know you. And, Lord, that they might see that you're gracious and, and really alive and have power to get them through the situation. 
and uh, bring them home to you one day. For God, we pray for uh, our marriages. We pray that you would cover them and keep them and uh, make us one. We pray for uh, our gatherings, God, that you'd make us one together. Lord, if we meet, uh, if we never meet again or we meet again a million more times, God, I pray that you would just bless this time and keep us together and unified in you and with the other churches in the area who love you and who follow you. Help us to be unified with them and not be worried about our kingdom or advancing our name, but that, God, your name would be uh, the first and foremost, and we would team up with others to bring you to uh, this area that's lost. And bless our neighbors here and, uh, and our kids, we ask in your graces on today. In Jesus' name, amen.